Infatuated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm your host, Emily. And I'm your host, Rebecca. And we are going to talk about some bomb-ass stories today. First of all, Emily, our first episode came out today. We might have listeners. We do, because I've gone and looked at the analytics and some people have listened to it. (laughs) Goodness, that's insane. I know. We've already had, or I don't know if you have, but I have had feedback from friends that have already listened to it, which is madness. Yeah, shout out to Bethan, who's already, like, number one fan, and Rhiannon. Oh, yeah. And (laughs) Rhiannon, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's really good. as well. Oh, Hannah. Yeah, well, she said that she'll be saving it to listen to in the bath um, tonight, so... It's Forbes's birthday today, um, as we're recording. Happy birthday, Forbes! And oh, he, happy birthday. he, um, he says he's going to listen to it too. Whether or not that's an enhancement to your birthday, I think it is. I think that we are an enhancement oh, to definitely. your birthday. But yeah, it feels good. So, if you've listened to our first episode, thanks. Here's the next one. How exciting! <laughs> So apart from editing that first podcast, like the absolute genius that you are, what have you been up to this week? I've had a lot of stress this week. Oh no, Uh, why? Still unsure what's happening with my work situation, Uh, you know, with corona and all that. So uh, I I still don't know when I'm going back properly, so it's just stressing me out a bit. But apart from that, it's been a good week. It was my grand's birthday, so we had a little socially distanced afternoon tea. That's cute. Which was very cute, and I got to see, like, some family members I've not seen, really. And got a five-star Animal Crossing island. Anyone who plays knows that's a big deal. So pleased with that. That's made my week. (laughs) Well, I'm very pleased for you. I don't play Animal Crossing, but I know how big a part of your life it has become. So oh, yeah. That's a big deal. And how's your week been? My week's been all right. I'm working from home at the moment, so I have recently started a new job at my job, and it's hard, I'm not going to lie. It's <laughs> challenging. I always forget like when you start a new job, you have to learn that job like it sounds so stupid but like you know what it is that you're supposed to do but I forget that you have to like learn the new skills yeah and like learning is so exhausting on my brain it's you're not just doing the job you're doing the job and learning how to do it at the same time yeah so it's like I do a shift but my brain feels like it's done like a shift and a half um (laughs) but no it's fun I did have a highlight at work where so I write headlines on front pages of a newspaper which will go unnamed I wrote a headline that was for sort of lockdown being lifted on July 15th and we had like a big calendar graphic of like July 15th the date and my headline was back to the future and I was just so proud of that I love that literally about six people at my work messaged me to be like did you write that well done and it's just such a simple thing but I felt I felt good at my job for like five seconds, so nice. that was good. But apart from that, haven't done anything very exciting at all. So Emily, what are you infatuated with this week? My infatuation this week is what I'm really excited to talk about. It is The Binding by Bridget Collins. Oh, that's so pretty. Look at that book. So this came out last year. It Mm. was the Waterstones Book of the Year for 2019. And I was recommended it by my friend Hannah, the one who will be listening to this in the bath. And yeah, I loved it. I was so hooked on it. So I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, I'm excited to hear about it. I've heard like good things about it, but I have no idea what what it's actually about. The Binding is set in England in the 19th century. It's about Emmett Farmer, who at the start of the book is quite sickly and not able to work properly on his dad's farm. And then he's suddenly called away from home to become an apprentice bookbinder. I'm in. Let's go. Strapping in. (laughs) So the thing is, in this world, books are quite taboo because what bookbinders do is they capture memories in the books that they bind. 
So if you have a secret or a memory that you want to forget, you can have a book bound and then you'll never have to remember it. That is so cool. So what this book revolves around is Emmett finding a volume with his own name on it. Dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Such so, a good premise, isn't it? Yes, I've literally never heard a premise like that. It's like a prophecy type thing. You know the thing in Harry Potter where it's like it's got all the glass balls with all the prophecies and stuff yes and then he like finds one with his name on it yeah. like reminds me of that but this sounds like more bind tingly i'm excited <laughs> for it. the plot of this book is quite hard to talk about without giving the game away because obviously it's about discovering secrets there's a mysterious character called lucien darnay which is a great name wow and Emmett feels like he knows him but he can't work out how he knows he's been ill but he doesn't know why he doesn't understand why he's been chosen to become a binder or how binding even works the book revolves around secrets and mysteries and I think that's why it's a gripping read that's why Mm. it's really interesting to discover the story along with him the way I read it this idea of being bound in books is maybe a metaphor for that kind of idea of like finding yourself in books or or even losing yourself in books I've got a quote from near the beginning of the book where Emmett is in the workshop for the first time and he has this really strange feeling of being at home before surrounded by all these books I'm already in love with this book yeah I I think you'll really like this one which is why I'm trying not to spoil anything because I really want you to read it I felt strange, but not sick exactly, and not afraid. It was as if something inside me was waking up and moving. The looping grain of the bench in front of me was like a map of somewhere I used to know. It's a funny feeling, isn't it, boy? What? She squinted at me, one of her milky tea eyes bleached almost white by the sun on the side of her face. It gets you, all this, when you're a binder born, which you are, boy. I didn't know what she meant, at least... There was something right about this room, something that unexpectedly made my heart lift, as if after a heat wave I could smell rain coming, or like glimpsing my old self from before I got ill. I hadn't belonged anywhere for so long, and now this room, with its smell of leather and glue, welcomed me. Oh, it's like a library and a saddlery put together, and oh, it's so (laughs) nice. Like So much of the book is filled with quotes that I think people who find solace in stories mm. will like really latch on to there's so many beautiful words and imagery and Collins is especially great at describing textures which I think is what makes it so visceral and like you're feeling it along yeah. with Emmett so like when he feels pleasure like you feel it but when he's uncomfortable like you really feel that as well the milky tea eyes they are really mm-hmm. like got me that was really like that kind of cataracty, unsettling, seeing but not seeing, like that really, yep. So as I said, I'm not going to focus too much on the plot while talking about this book today. Um, its story is such a great read and I would love to talk about it. But <laughs> what I thought I would do instead is talk about the world building, which is mm. something that I can't really ruin all the twists with. She's basically done a really good job at, at creating this magical realism world. And the rules of the world are so well thought out. One thing I really loved was how she differentiates between books and novels. So books are these specially bound volumes that are full of someone's memories, whereas novels are fiction. And a lot of people call them fakes because obviously it's made up stories instead of like real people's stories. If you read fakes, you're looked down upon because those are cheaply made, whereas real books are sought after they're kind of like a trophy and the trade of real books is supposed to be banned but some of the binders will sell their books to those who are willing to like pay the high prices that's so Uh, interesting that idea like the novels being looked down upon because obviously that is the history of novels mm -hmm. yeah exactly and this is a novel especially with female readers as well like that that was who novels used to be targeted to yeah Kind of so, now how you have like chick lit and it's like looked down upon, but it's actually like, nah, it's just a good story though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, it's like, I always call it pink fiction, but like, yeah, yeah chick lit, like all those books that you'd buy like in an airport with a mm-hmm. pink cover and like your beach read. And I'm like, yeah, but it's good for that though. 
one feature which stuck with me was that there are women who sell themselves to bookbinders to make money. So it's essentially like they're sex workers, but instead of selling their bodies, they sell their memories to make what is basically porn. Someone makes a really heartbreaking comment that a woman who does this doesn't even remember her children anymore because she's had so many memories bound that it's affected how she retains any memory. And I love that the authors thought about instances like this, things that don't affect the plot but really enrich the setting and make it feel real and believable. Yeah, like that little bit of world building just it makes it feel like as you say, it's believable because it's not just serving the plot that the main character is having. Yeah, exactly. Some people use the binding to get rid of painful memories, and you can kind of understand that. Like, if it's something that's truly terrible that they have to live with, maybe removing that memory is the best thing. That's one thing I really like about this book, is that it makes you question whether there is anything that you would want Mm. to get rid of if you had the chance. Yeah, Um, But there are people who abuse the system. It's written about and it's insinuated that it's a widespread issue that men who keep servants abuse the young women then have them bound so that they don't know what's happened and they'll sometimes do it to their wives as well and then they will continue to abuse these women over and over until their minds can't handle it anymore. Holy shit! I suppose it does. It speaks a lot about literature, though, doesn't it? Because you have like literature is escape and escapism. Mm-hmm. So like you can literally lose yourself in a book and that mm-hmm. provides like relief. But then yeah. you've, you've got like voices that get heard and then voices that get silenced by the way that stories are told. That's so prevalent just now as well, with like the way that history is told. And oh, my God, it's so clever. Yeah, I'm actually the quote I'm about to read, I think, really goes into that kind of idea as well I didn't pick out many quotes because I do think it's good to go into this one without knowing all the intricacies but the one that I do have it's quite long it's a couple pages but I thought it was a really great way of describing this world and all the dark aspects of binding he finished his brandy and stood watching me idly stroking the neck of the decanter you binders he said in a new, almost friendly voice, as if he were a host and I were his guest. You give me the chills. What's it like when you're inside someone's mind, when they're naked and helpless and you're so close you can taste them? It must be rather like fucking to order, is it? But he didn't expect me to answer. And then you come groveling to men like my father for more. Silence. The fire scratched and muttered in the hearth. There's a growing trade in fakes, you know. Does that concern you? He paused, but he didn't seem surprised not to get an answer. I've never seen one, well, as far as I know, but I'm curious. Could one really tell the difference? Novels, they call them. They must be much cheaper to produce. You can copy them, you see. Use the same story over and over, and as long as you're careful how you sell them, you can get away with it. It makes one wonder who would write them. People who enjoy imagining misery, I suppose. People who have no scruples about dishonesty. People who can spend days writing a long, sad lie without going insane. He flicked one fingernail against the decanter, punctuating what he'd said with a tiny clink. My father, of course, is a connoisseur. He claims that he would know instantly if he saw a novel. He says that a real, authentic book breathes an unmistakable scent of, well, he calls it truth or life. I think maybe he means despair. On the wall next to the window, there was a dark landscape in an elaborate frame. Mountains, a foaming cataract, a half-ruined bridge overgrown with ivy. I focused on it. I wanted to be there, standing on the cracked stone parapet, where the noise of water could drown out Lucian's soft voice. Then again, he said, It makes me wonder about you, the binders. What is it like to steal a soul, to take misery and make it innocuous? To heal a wound so that it can be inflicted again for the first time. That's not... You tell people that you're helping, taking away pain, making the bad things go away. So respectable. Visiting the grief-stricken widows, the neurotic spinsters, smoothing over excesses of emotion. He shook his head. You make it all bearable when nothing else can. Is that right? I... He laughed and then stopped so suddenly the silence hung like an echo. No, he said at last. That's what you hide behind. If that was all you did, he inhaled through his teeth. 
The Havilland sees the same servants over and over. My father has whole shelves of books. He pointed at the air with a sharp finger. Mary for five years, Marianne for three, Abigail, Abigail, Abigail. I can't remember how many times because she was one of his favourites. Sarah, twice, now Nell. And it'll be Nell over and over until she's too old. And you'll come back for her every year. And every year it'll be the same story. And you'll take it away from my father to gloat over. It's a double pleasure for him to read the story from inside her head and then do it all again as if he's never touched her before. No. Yes, farmer. His voice was like a scalpel. So sharp it took whole seconds before I felt the pain. Why do you think he pays you so much? It's his vice, his clever little evil vice. And when they leave, they're sucked dry, bound for the last time so they don't remember anything. They'll deny he ever touched them. They'll tell everyone he's a lovely man, delightful. And if ever anyone tries to do something to stop him, he laughs. You understand? He laughs because he's safe. When I found out, he sent me away and told me I was lucky it wasn't to the madhouse. And it's you, you, farmer, and the rest of you, de Havilland and his friends, that let him do it. That's why he's safe, because you come and do his dirty work. No, I said. No, it isn't always, it isn't meant to be like that. Well, that was dark. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. That's pretty disturbing. He lays out the argument pretty well. I know, I know it's quite a dark quote, but I just thought it explains the world so much. And there are clearly parallels between this and, you know, real life. Women are being silenced by men who have taken advantage of them. And I think it's a really powerful way of bringing up the issue because she literally does take away their words. It's a good metaphor as well, because it's this idea of like a broken system that's supposed to be good. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's supposed to be something that heals, but can you really heal by taking the burden off of someone? No, because you just shouldn't be allowing the burden to happen. And as well, to be bound, you have to give consent. But these women are coerced or manipulated into giving their consent. Jesus. Um, which just demonstrates that total breakdown of power and law, which women are sadly... <laughs> too familiar with <laughs> yep <laughs> I, can, I can completely see why you picked world building for this book and this topic so yeah that was obviously quite a heavy topic to finish on so I won't end there I'll just bring it back to me gushing about the book for, for a little <laughs> bit but yeah basically I, I adored this story and I think it's such a good read the Guardian called it truly spellbinding and I think that's the perfect word for it. The relationships between all the characters are complex. Emmett and his sister Alta really feel like siblings. The relationship between Emmett and Lucian is just so believable and it's nuanced as well and yeah without trying to give it away too much the book is split into three sections that are all quite different but I think what makes that work is this really well thought out world and also the super thorough characterization and exploration of all the relationships that are in it. They all work together to create a very believable and intriguing story. That is all I have to say on the binding. Oh my goodness. I, well, I don't think that's all you have to say in the binding. Oh no, it's not, not all I have to say. <laughs> it's all I've allowed myself to say today. <laughs> Well, I, for one, will definitely be reading that. And Mm -hmm. I always say that to things that you recommend because everything sounds good, but like Mm -hmm. obviously can't read all your list and all my list at the same time. But I feel like that one is definitely going to be like the minute that we are back in our flat and we are sharing a bookshelf again, I will be reading that because I love the whole like something like a book about a book is just, mm -hmm, yeah, yum, love that. I've not really heard that premise before and it sounds like from the tone of what you read out it sounds like the magical realism's done really like crafted really well yeah as magic realism. My infatuation this week is a poetry book. I thought that since last week we both sort of went for fiction I would throw in some poetry just to to mix it up a little bit so Mm -hmm. The book that I want to talk about is called Discipline by Jane Yeh. 
It's published by Karkinet and it comes with a recommendation from the Poetry Book Society. So you know that it's good. I feel um, like I've heard of this one before. No, I hadn't either. I was recommended it by my tutor for my creative writing course because the project that I'm working on is all to do with femininity and music and female adolescence. And this has a lot of that in it, but it's not specifically about that. So I'm going to just talk a little bit about the author first because I had never heard of Jane Ye before this and I'm kind of sad about that because this is her third collection. So I'm going to obviously now have to go back and read the first and second collections. But <laughs> obviously, she, she's, she's an American poet, but she's lived in England for quite a long time, I think more than a decade, and she's a very high up professory person at, I think, Oxford Creative Writing. There's a description from her bio page on the Poetry Archive. That article says that her work manages to be as touching and as sinister as anything produced by Pixar. And I just thought, like, having read the book and then reading that quote, that's such a good introduction to the type of thing that we're talking about. Because what strikes me about it is, so when I googled her, I was really surprised because I found out that she's 49 and I expected it to be from someone her age because mm-hmm. it's so whimsical and youthful and that just says so much to me a about her way of seeing the world but also about like my prejudices as a reader and it made me happy because I know that there's a thing about sort of middle-aged women being completely forgotten about in literature and not really getting a voice like there's a lot of erasure and obviously she's Asian American as well I'd never heard of her and that speaks volumes but also mm-hmm. the fact that like we need to interrogate how we profile authors yeah. um, and their work because it's so stupid that I read this book that was so whimsical and youthful and thought, oh, it must be a young person that wrote this. Like, how fucking basic bitch is that? So, yeah, I'm going to start reading from the book now. And the yeah. first poem that I'm going to read is called Turn It On. And this is my favourite poem in the book on first reading. Spill of sequins down the front. Follow spot-coloured French peacock. The song spills from her open mouth. Don't you worry, honey. Left hand on the strings. Her voice is a holler made of fury and beer. Her lungs are a calamity. Can't stand the thought. Chit-chat and sassafras. Light then dark. Flip a switch. Noise like a tidal wave swallowing her up. Noise like a wall. Hard heart pulling out all the stops. Till it doesn't hurt anymore. Don't say the word. A chain of notes in the dark. Won't she or will? The kick and stutter of her voice as the next song starts. Her arm all guitar, sparkle and dirt. That poem. So I'm a dog eater of pages anyway. And I just like (laughs) creased the fuck out of that page. Because I've never read a poem about what I'm taking to be like a a gig, a concert. Yeah, that's Uh, that's how I pictured it yeah yeah and I just first of all I thought like I've not really read a poem that is so overtly just about listening to live music like it it doesn't seem easy to put into poetry because that's an experience that always feels so like religious and special and like amazing when you're there Mm -hmm. but then it's so hard to like get that feeling into words anyway and then poetry can be so highbrow and sort of rock and music and stuff is seen as so lowbrow it can feel really hard to put them together but she's managed to do it and I just think she's done it so perfectly. I also would say you could imagine someone writing a like a novel or a short story something about a gig because you can get all that description in on what it feels like but she's managed to do that in quite a short poem. (laughs) Yeah right and just some of the the language in it like chit chat and sassafras i love the first line spell of sequins down the front yeah immediately i'm like yep i'm at a taylor swift concert (laughs) (laughs) but or or any you know any big sort of flashy gig like where there's like a light show and there's like costumes and it feels like the magic and then the flip a switch noise like a tidal wave that like moment where the crowd rushes forward and so exhilarating and then like my favorite bit is the the last line as the next song starts her arm all guitar 
sparkle and dirt because I just love that image of like when I was little and I was learning to play guitar that's what a guitar feels like it can be so rock and roll and so like boyish and like I'm hardcore but it's also so feminine and like delicate and it can be used to be such a pretty instrument it just hit me (laughs) (laughs) and I thought it was gorgeous and so that's sets the tone for me of the book the book is a lot about experiences of art so there's a lot of experiences of visual art or of museum exhibitions or of music but it's also about finding a place in the world there's a lot of poems that revolve around sort of movement and religion and immigration I'm not going to dive into those today just because I feel like that's a whole topic that I've not really had an experience of but it I feel like by having these experiences like just going to a gig it let me into the book enough that then I can kind of see from her point of view yeah I can I can relate and then I can inhabit the the character or the narrator of the poem in those which yeah I just thought I thought it was good so another poem that I wanted to read because specifically I thought you would like it it's called these movies there are two poems like this in the book one is called rejected book reviews and one is called these movies and they're just reviews so one of me and Emily's favorite things to do is to watch movies together and then just talk about them this just reminded me so much of you and just our love of films The story of this movie can't be described in words. This movie is like when you suddenly pull off a wig to reveal another wig underneath, which you were wearing all along. The second wig has a flatter hairstyle, but is clearly still a wig. This movie is like how horses have only four possible gates, except for horses in Iceland, which have a fifth gate. But it doesn't matter because they aren't ever allowed to leave the country. This movie is like the story of the Thracian liar, A Thracian man who is incapable of lying. This is a paradox. This story is like the movie of a sewing machine sewing a teacup while a teacup printed with sewing machines looks on. This movie is like the feeling of a glass slowly overflowing because you keep pouring water into it no matter what. And also like the overflowing water. I don't really rate this movie. This movie is another movie that can't be described in words, even though a number of treatments are written to describe it. This movie was shown in the context of numerous other movies that featured exploding flowers, a spinning bicycle wheel and ostriches as heroes. In such a movie-ish context, this movie appeared to be like a bird eating poisonous roses leaf by leaf, or else like a carton of automatic pencils gathering dust, or like an elegant lady in a mantilla plucking her eyebrows badly. If this movie could talk, it would have a squeaky voice like a nerd in a Hollywood movie, even though most nerds actually have normal voices. What happens in this movie is valid, like the way Newtonian physics can predict the movement of smoke from the tip of a lit cigarette. The end of this movie could have been made by a dog pressing its nose into wet concrete over and over. Good movie. I love that. That last line, I feel like I didn't get that whole poem until I read the last line. Mm. And then I totally, completely got... (laughs) Like that feeling that when you've watched a good movie and you just feel warm... Mm-hmm. the dog pressing its nose into wet concrete over and over like <laughs> that lasting impression of something so small it's just an error or two of your life but yeah. it's just so good I know I don't even know what to say about that because I, I just really enjoyed that I thought that just hit the nail on the head I feel like we've had conversations that could definitely sound like that <laughs> <laughs> because maybe kind of... can't be described in words but she's done it yeah and it felt like it was kind of talking about highbrow and lowbrow movies Mm. as well like I I enjoyed that one yeah I feel like there's a lot to unpack there and we don't have the time also I meant to google this for this and I forgot but I I need to find out about these horses in Iceland that have a fifth gate yes because like Uh, yeah I'm like is that made up has she made that up for the purposes of the poem or is that real and I don't know which is more impressive, but I need to know. <laughs> so anyway, that's that idea of like highbrow and lowbrow, but also don't you think it's just fun to listen to? Like Yeah, definitely. All those images. That doesn't make it doesn't make any sense, but it's just fun to listen to. And sometimes that's the best types of movies as well. Oh yeah. Probably my favourite movie is La La Land and loads of people hate it because it is bizarre and 
doesn't make any sense. But yeah, anyway, I really liked it. I hope everyone enjoyed that poem. So the third and last poem that I'm going to read out from this. It's just really fun. That is probably what I do want to say mostly in this introductory discussion of poetry is that I feel like a lot of the time people are intimidated by poetry because they think that there's something that they're missing. And in this collection, you could probably read a lot into it, but also it's just really fun and it just feels like it was fun to write and it's fun to read. It's just having a good time with words. And I think that if more people went into poetry just looking to have a good time with words, then they'd like it a lot more. Yeah, I think a lot of people, their only experience with poetry is skill where they've picked a poem specifically because it's got all these images and particular themes and all the stuff that you have to break down to really understand it. Yeah. Whereas so much poetry was just fun. (laughs) This is a short history of mythology. To be a lady centaur... Leaping across the hedgehog aisles, as to be in heaven and wearing a tropical lay. Like a shower of spiral curls, my tail is springy. It smells like violets and shit. In a good way. Thank you, pool. I can bounce down a peninsula, laden with gorgonzola, harvesting bites between watching my shows and inventing the handsaw, between waving a tapestry and visiting space. I will stomp on a few thousand years of Lady Centaur history without regrets. To leap through a waterfall in a novelty t-shirt, holding a gift basket between my teeth to shake my legs around, pretending to be a freaky spider, to investigate a mole all day, or whatever is stealing my tomatoes. Is a paradise like a partridge? My head bobs when I run, my boobs bob when I run. When I run into the purple-tinged hills, I can be mythical. Like the very specific flower they use in salads in LA as a garnish. If you look at it upside down, you can see the face of a furious boy. That last <laughs> line was great. Right? I love how the whole thing is so funny, and then that last line just isn't. <laughs> <laughs> I love that she got watching my shows in there. Yeah, watch, watching my shows is a very important part of current culture. And novelty t-shirts as well. I enjoyed that line. The whole book feels kind of surreal and mythical and there's all these sort of funny, strange images and it's just a good time. And so on that note, what I really wanted to talk about, I read all those poems because I wanted to give an idea of what the book is like, but I also really want to talk about the cover, which I realise that no one else can see, but I think that they should go look it up and I'm going to show you. So this is the cover. The image on the cover is a piece from an artist called Scott Hove, and it's from a series called Cakeland. Just to describe it quickly, it's like a whole room of cake. Everything is pink. There's like frosting and maraschino cherries and strawberries, and there's like a chandelier of fruit. But in amongst all this cake, there are mirrors set into the cake dressing table, and that's the only thing that isn't cake. That's disturbing to me. <laughs> and I just, I when I got this book, I spent so long looking at the cover and trying to work out why it disturbed me. I think it was those mirrors because, A, how are there mirrors in the cake? Why are there mirrors in the cake? How did they get there? But also, whoever has taken the picture, like, you can't see anyone in the mirrors. Mm-hmm. So it's just like this empty room of cake and really sort of disconcerted me. And I thought that that was a good cover image for this collection because there is so much in it that is beautiful and it's really decorative, but it is also really disturbing. The stuff is also decadent, and by the stuff I mean like the cover image and the poems inside, but it's unsettling because you've got these layers of like fakery. Because obviously there's things like Lady Centaurs in the poems, that doesn't exist, but a lot of the truths underneath what she's saying do exist. And the same way in the Cakeland series, Scott Hove, he's an LA-based sculptor and he does these as like big exhibits, sort of life-size things, which makes it even more unsettling because could you imagine walking into that room that's made to look like it's made of cake, right? The quote that I read about his work is that his concerns are the area between euphoria and paranoia. 
And I think that that really speaks to this idea of like layers of fakery and layers of truth. Sort of a sculpture made to look like a cake, made to look like a bed, for example. Yeah. As a cover, it's really well chosen, and it like it was such a striking image that it made me go and look up the artist, which a lot of book covers don't do that. And it just kind of got me thinking a lot about how poetry and visual art can kind of go hand in hand in that way. And I'd like to see more of that in literature. And I think we are getting more of that. I think we're getting more deliberately chosen book art. Yeah, definitely. With like the advent of social media and stuff like that. I um, think as well, authors are getting more say in what their cover is. Whereas before, yeah. it was very much like the publisher or whoever would pick definitely. it for them. Yeah, whereas I think a lot authors are getting a lot more agency. But also, like, there are a lot more specialised jobs now in publishing. And there'll be people whose job it is just to look for that. Yeah. And who really have really read the book and then go and choose the cover based on that rather than just from an ad pitch. I thought it was brilliant. Like, when I first picked to talk about this book, I thought I was only going to talk about the poems. But the more that I have, like, carried the book around all week, the more that the cover just really got to me. So Emily, do you want to talk about your writing? This week I've actually not done a lot of writing. I've been kind of thinking more, which is still quite a big part of writing. Yeah, For those who part. aren't writers, a lot of your time is spent just thinking about <laughs> what you're <laughs> going to write. And I wanted to use this section to air something that I've been quite conflicted about while writing uh, my novel. And it's something I thought a lot about while reading The Binding, actually, because as we talked about, her world building is so complex, but there is a simplicity to it in that the setting is made up. So, Mm. like, yeah, it's England, but, you know, it's a made-up town. Mm. It's quite a generic place. Yeah, and it doesn't come with, like, the burden of history. Exactly, yeah. So I started writing my novel based in it in a real place. And as it stands, it still looks like that. But because of logistical reasons (laughs) I was starting to question if I should just take elements from real life and make it like a made-up place as well so I also wanted to ask you if if you have a preference when you're reading something do you like to read about real or imagined places and as well what about your writing do you like to draw in real places or do you like to create new worlds I think that's a really interesting question I haven't I can't say I've ever really thought about it, but my instinctive reaction is I wouldn't be drawn to a book because it is set in a real place. Mm-hmm. But I don't I don't think I'd be put off it either. But sometimes the inclusion of real places distracts me a little bit from the story. If it's a, if it's a real place that I've never been, it's fine, right? Like if you were to yeah. set a book in Rome, like I've never been to Rome. I'm like, yeah, sure. I believe you. If you tell me stuff, it might as well be made up, right? But if you set a book in my hometown and then you take creative license with the geography of that, I'm going to be like, no, that's wrong. See, that's what my kind of issue is, is it's the geography. I want my characters to be able to get to places a lot quicker than is realistically possible. Right. (laughs) Which is why I'm starting to think that I might just have to change my approach and go for more of like an imagined place the thing is is that you could absolutely base it on a real place in your writing and then literally change the name to a made-up name yeah you could and like because if it makes it easier for you to write it imagining it in a certain place Mm -hmm. then you just use that place but like then no one else needs to know where that was that's sort of what I'm doing I name a couple of real places that are like Mm -hmm not the main setting but like where the characters visit but then the main setting the town I haven't actually named but it's just a sort of generic central Scotland town yeah but yeah I think I think it depends as well on the genre but you know a lot of crime fiction is based in real places and that enriches it because you know you you have like flesh market close in Edinburgh which is about flesh market close in Edinburgh Um, and the history the history is tied into the narrative so obviously you need that. But then, I don't know, if it's fantasy, I I wouldn't be married to the idea of the place being real. 
it's something I'm still like undecided on because there are bits that I've written where I feel like I've captured the place quite well but yeah I just thought I would share this because I'm hoping that you know either people who are writers or people who don't write at all will find it interesting to hear more about the process yeah yeah writing is not easy no it's (laughs) not because I don't think people who don't write realize that as much maybe yeah like that you would even have these questions to ask yourself yeah if you have any thoughts on this please weigh in on our social media (laughs) please let me know for my writing topic this week I haven't done that much writing either this week to be honest I did a little bit today but I thought I would link back to what I was saying about discipline and Cakeland and just talk a little bit about my own experience with visual stimuli when it comes to writing because I think a lot of the time when I want to hear from writers and other artists like everyone wants to know like what inspired this and there's always like a quick answer is like oh I saw this thing and that got me thinking but I thought well I'm gonna pretend I'm already famous and people already care and I'm gonna just sort of explain a journey that I've had with a piece of visual art that I saw and how it's manifested in my writing. Since about November or December last year in 2019, I've had like a proper obsession with wings. Well, like rather, I've always kind of been fascinated with wings, but I only started really examining that because of a collaboration project that I did via uni with the V&A Dundee, which for anyone that doesn't know, it's a big design museum. So for this collaboration, what we did was we went to the V&A and it was it was the morning. Do you remember the morning that I fell outside the school and the wee boy was so concerned about me that he didn't even laugh? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> not all children are monsters. Anyway, it was that day. And so we go to the B&A. We were given a sort of behind the scenes guided tour of the Scottish galleries. And we also had this object handling session from significant objects that had been involved in like the planning and the design and the building of the museum, which was really cool. And then the idea was that we'd give creative responses either in writing or illustration to something that we'd seen or heard in kind of a like ekphrastic exercise thing. So the object that I chose, obviously, was a tiara. And it was this beautiful tiara. It was in this big glass case. And it was a Cartier-designed commission. And I swear to God, it was like a band around the head. Yeah, I know really exactly sim- what one you're talking about. Because I've oh seen it, God. taken photos of it before. <laughs> and, right, so it's like, it's got a band around the head. And then it's just got these two big, massive jeweled wings yeah. coming up off just like just above where your ear would be and back yeah makes me think of like like a roman or greek god yeah. or goddess like that kind of thing. it is absolutely stunning and the sparkle that comes off this thing is blinding yeah. so anyway the the tiara is called the valkyrie unsurprisingly and yeah it was a unique piece commissioned from cartier by the countess of roxborough it was the story of the tiara that really got me. So she commissioned this in the style of a flapper tiara back in the, the 1920s. That's it's not it's not very old. And she wanted it in a flapper style so that she could wear these wings in a way that were fashionable. The wings themselves she already had. They had belonged to her mother. And that was all that was said was she already had these wings. They belonged to her mother. She wanted them on a flapper tiara. And I just thought who just has two big diamond encrusted wings sitting about? <laughs> what were they from? Also a fun fact from that story was that this countess didn't like red. So obviously Cartier's signature box is red. And she commissioned them to make her specially a cream box. Mm. Which I just feel like is big dick energy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My thought process from this, I, th- I started thinking a lot about the Valkyrie warriors, which were obviously mainly women. And like femininity and inheritance as being wrapped up with these the symbol of wings, along with like all the the normal kind of connotations of like freedom that you get from like a bird or like hubris from Icarus. And I started noticing how often the wing shape or symbol comes into sort of everyday life, specifically for women, but also for everybody. So like some some examples that I noticed were winged eyeliner. We get a lot of like butterfly tattoos. The motion of like a spine or like something in the middle separating, opening to a middle is quite feminine. But also just in everyday life, you know, we've got wing mirrors on cars. We've got curlicues on architecture. 
we eat wings. We could even see a book as a set of wings, you know, like mm-hmm. the, the spine and then the two sheaves. And then to sort of top all, it all off in a very like serendipitous way that you'll enjoy. At Christmas, when we had our revival of The Whole of the Moon by the Water Boys, which we played in our... <laughs> Which we played in our flat about 60 million times. Yeah. How many times did I say the line, I spoke about wings, you just flew, is like the perfect line, yeah. right? Basically, I have been writing about wings nonstop because, as you've just seen, I've got so many different ways that I want to take this image. And even looking at my old stuff from before I started consciously writing about them, they're always there. And so that's my kind of symbolic obsession at the moment, to the point where my novel has the working title, Wings. And I think that the tiara was just so important for me to come into that place of like femininity with the wings, because I think before I had associated them a lot more with the sort of Greek myths, like Icarus, and sort of freedom, and those were more masculine concepts. Yeah, like the fallen angel or something. Yeah, things like that. The catalyst of the tiara has just taken me in a completely different direction. Also the idea of anatomy, like wings being something that you wear. Like mm-hmm. obviously it was always something that's on that's part of a body, it's on a back, but the idea of it being like fashion and anatomy at the same time has just like my imagination's just gone wild with that. I love that. So yeah, that's really it. I don't have anything profound to say about them, but I just think that that journey from seeing something in a museum and I was in a context where I was being told to have a creative response Mm -hmm. but obviously you can apply that anytime you can take that like it's just something that pervades in your brain and then you just get obsessed and I think that people that write will really get that but also people that want to write that's like a good place to start as if there's something that, that doesn't go away just like write about it and see what what happens. I think often when you're given a prompt obviously everyone approaches something differently and it could be you know a prompt that you've literally never heard before it could be about something mm-hmm. you don't know but you'll always find a way to make it about something that you do know mm-hmm. um, and that that kind of tells you what you're interested in and then absolutely there yeah like there was so many things in that museum right I had literally I had bridges and I had clothes and there were yeah there's like video games and like, video like games. there's everything yeah there's ev- there's science there's music there's there's everything you could possibly want and what I picked out was the sparkly tiara with the mythical name <laughs> yeah <laughs> so to be yeah fair, I think I would probably have done the same thing <laughs> I think that's why we're we're such good friends I think so. but I wanted to just ask you is there like an image or something like a visual thing that you've had a similar relationship with there must be because I always save normally artwork mm. by people I normally save artwork and go back and look at it I'm always obsessed with like the celestial so like anything mm. like that inspires me and I've got quite into looking at tarot cards recently and it's not in a fortune telly way it's in a I love the images yeah like aesthetic on them yeah and so I've taken quite a lot of inspiration from those for my novel. So I suppose that that could be my answer at the moment. But I feel like I always get inspired by visual things as well. Yeah, yeah you're quite into like you you like you love a star. Oh yeah. So like you said, the <laughs> celestial. So what is it about the tarot cards? Do you think that like interests? I like the idea that I suppose there's going to be people who disagree with this who actually believe in the um, Cult. spiritual side of it Mm. but I like tarot because it is essentially just telling a story the fortune teller lies down the cards and fits together a story that will fit the person who's in front Mm. of them all the cards tell a story on them so off the top of my head the one I can always remember is the moon card Mm. and it's like the moon at the top there's a path right down the middle of it and there's a dog on one side and a wolf on the other and it's it's kind of meant to represent a journey and depending on what kind of story the fortune teller is trying to tell she can talk about the elements so like what does the wolf mean what does the dog mean like what is the path you know I just I like that they all kind of tell a story on this one little card yeah and it's Um, like quite simple but it's quite loaded isn't it yeah exactly and it's like an abundance of stories you can mix it up however you want it's yeah going to tell a different story every time so that's inspired me. That's a lot of what my 
novel is about is ekphrastic stimuli people take your art from other people's art there's nothing wrong with it there's no such thing as an original idea (laughs) yeah definitely So Emily, do you have a quickfire favourite this week? My quickfire favourite is a song. It is Downward by Ripe. So this song is a couple of years old, but Spotify recommended it to me recently and I totally fell in love with it. It's about falling in love with someone who you know it's not going to work with, oh, but you do it anyway because it's that. fun. <laughs> so like the chorus literally goes, this love keeps pulling me downward, pulling me downward, and I don't mind the fall. And then, oh, I love that. If anyone has read The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller, I think this song and the lyrics fit that book so well. But it may just be because I was I was reading it while that song was playing. But yeah, I just wanted to share another lyric from one of the verses purely because I like it and I think that you'll like it as well. It's tomorrow's a whispered promise, so kill me with goodbye. Oh, is that not heartbreaking? Ow. <laughs> but yeah, it's actually a really upbeat song <laughs> i really like when songs with quite a like dark or sad story yeah. or have like this upbeat happy instrumental. Beat, yeah. so yeah i think that kind of sums up the story it's trying to tell that they're enjoying themselves while they still can and yeah it's just a really good song guys you should go listen to it oh what you've how you've described it reminds me of treacherous by taylor swift obviously i do listen to other artists but like yeah because <laughs> that the chorus of that is like this slope is treacherous this path is reckless the slope is treacherous but I like it yeah it's that same kind of vibe same kind of vibe like oh this is a bad plan but I'm gonna do it anyway so my Uh, quick fire favorite is another podcast it's a relatively new podcast it only has two episodes out at the moment but it's called Ditty in a Dash basically the premise of it is this singer-songwriter girl who lives in London called Frances and I don't know her last name because she just goes by Frances. Like, that's her professional name. Frances gets her friends, who are also talented singer-songwriters, on her podcast every two weeks. They chat a little bit about music and writing, and then in 15 minutes, they make a song. It is, like, not often a full song. But, for example, the last episode with Maisie Peters as the guest, who... For people that don't know, Maisie Peters is like one of my favourite artists at the moment. I cannot get enough of her. (laughs) She was on it and they wrote basically like the pre-chorus and a chorus of a song in 15 minutes. So the way that they did it, I thought was really cool because she had like prompts in a hat. A word prompt and an object and then like a a second word prompt. The first one they picked blind, but then once you had your blind one, then you could pick another one. Right, okay, yeah. um, To sort of go with it. And then they just incorporated that into a song. But what appealed to me about it as well, ironically, is that it was really short episodes. It's 23 minutes long. And I, I have a short attention span. So I enjoyed that. For someone who's like not musical, but I wish that I was. Like, I just think it's like the most interesting thing on the planet is to watch people create songs in real time. It's one thing to hear people describe the process for something that already exists. But it's like mm-hmm. another thing to watch it come into being. It's just really cool. My rant this week is more contemplative because, Emily, do you know what I'm furious about? The fact that self-care works. Okay. So the other day, it was absolutely roasting. Proper melting outside. And I was sitting outside in the sun and it was very, very warm. And I thought, I should go and get my sun hat and I should go and put sunscreen on. Because if I don't, I'm going to get a headache and I'm going to get burnt. Two or three years ago... I would have just not done those things because I was quite comfy and I didn't want to move and I would have just got burnt and got a headache, right? Yeah. But I didn't. I went and I did the things and I didn't get burnt and I didn't have a headache. It's the same with everything. It's the same with drinking your water. People have told me for years, "Drink, drink your water. It clears your mind. It clears your skin. It fixes your entire love life. Drink your water. <laughs> the last year or so, I've just started doing it and it it does same with yoga all these zen ladies for years and years with their like wee messy buns and their cute little two pieces are like I'm so not stressed and I sleep so much better because I do yoga and I don't have any muscle pain and I was like bullshit and then I started doing yoga and I was like oh my god I'm so not stressed and I sleep better and I don't have any muscle pain also like I feel like people should say this 
better orgasms. Just gonna put that out there from yoga. If you're a person who's not, who's toyed with the idea, let that be the thing that tips you. Anyway, skincare, balanced diet, drinking water, doing mental health things, all of it works. And I feel like knowing this to be true is just the demise of all my adolescent cynicism. And it's so sensible and it's so boring and it makes me annoyed because it makes all the annoying people very right. And I'm in the huff about it. And that's my rant for this week is... You're mad that you're doing well. I'm mad that I'm doing well. (laughs) Yes, I am. Also, I don't have an excuse now for when I feel shit because I can be like, I have the tools to not feel like shit and I know they work. Yeah, can't be lazy anymore. And that bothers me. (laughs) Right, what's your insight for this week, Emily? So I actually shared this on my Instagram story this week, but I wanted to tell it on here too, because it's a good story. So I saw it on a Crystal account (laughs) called Girl Love Luna on Instagram. And it's a little story about how amethysts got their name and how they came to be. It's just a little story for you. Greek mythology has it the wine god Bacchus, angry over an insult and determined to avenge himself, decreed the first person he should meet would be devoured by his tigers. The unfortunate mortal happened to be a beautiful maiden named Amethyst on her way to worship at the shrine of Diana. As the ferocious beast sprang, she sought the protection of the goddess and was saved by being turned into a clear white crystal. Bacchus, regretting his cruelty, poured the juice of his grapes over the stone as an offering, giving the gem its lovely purple hue. Aww. I just thought that was a really nice story. I enjoyed it when I heard it. I love the idea that, like, it's like a wine stone. <laughs> yeah. But, like, that it was clear to begin with. Oh, that's so yeah. cool. I love the Greeks and all their myths and legends. I just feel like they're so interesting. I like, do you know why I like them? Because they all make sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, there's always a thought behind it. Nothing's, yeah, they, like, got no they're always They're always an explanation for something. Yeah. We're going to tell absolute bullshit here, but it's going to sound so good that you're not even going to mind. And they're going to, like, build statues and have books and have all this stuff that just makes you think, like, wait, was this real? <laughs> yeah, it's like, re- it's like real commitment to the fandom. Yeah. That's <laughs> what yeah, they have sure. going on. Love that. That was pretty. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. So this week's Tell Me Something I Don't Know is submitted by my friend Rhiannon and the question is, who do you wish would write an autobiography so you could read it? Should we open the question up to Alive or Dead? Who do we wish had written an autobiography? Do you want me to go first, seeing as I've previewed the question yeah you go first yeah cool so I think a lot of his work could be seen as autobiographical but I'd really love to have heard an autobiography from Oscar Wilde oh that's a good answer could you yeah. imagine because like his own words are just so good anyway yeah but, I would like, love to read that like because I have a book of like his epithets and like little quotes that he said yeah and I just I would listen to him talk about shopping lists so yeah, I just think that an autobiography, if he had written one, would be absolutely salacious and like so full of good gossip and also <laughs> like just so fun to read. That's a really good answer. I second that. I, I don't know if this exists. I don't think it does. But maybe like one of the Bronte sisters or like all of them, but maybe like a Charlotte Bronte, you know, imagining she could tell it now what um, her opinions were on getting published and everything. So also the Brontes all used male-sounding names mm. to get published at first, so they'd be taken more seriously. She's now such a massive force in the gothic literature sphere, so I wonder if she would have thought about that while she was writing. I don't yeah. know. I don't think I have a, a solid answer, but I feel like like someone in that kind of vein, like a Charlotte yeah. Bronte or a Jane Austen, even. Mm, Jane Austen would be interesting yeah. because she's so, like prolific with her fiction but then yeah. barely anything from her mm-hmm. own mouth yeah or mary shelley <gasps> that could be really cool that would be cool she seems like such a badass as well i bet you the way she told it would be yeah good. especially because like frankenstein was first published under percy shelley's name and i just feel like that would be so interesting to hear about she also had quite a scandalous 
romance mm. with him and yeah. I love and it's quite Dundee centric as well no that's yeah, a good basically answer. gave like three answers there no yeah. I think like I think the fact that we've picked people that are all dead says a lot I think like now it's not out with the realms of possibility that a lot of people will write an autobiography just with social media anyway you know a lot about people's lives yeah um, I know you don't know all the details obviously but there's a lot of people that I like that I would be quite happy with never writing an autobiography because I feel like I already know them yeah does Hugh Jackman have an autobiography oh I don't think he does not that I know of anyway because I feel like I need that to exist at some well, point. Well, his show that we saw was basically an autobiography. He was telling yeah, well, his exactly. like, story through music. So that would well, be I a know. really good book, yeah. Yeah, because that show was amazing. And also, he's just so nice. Yeah. <laughs> we love Hugh. We love Hugh. We love Hugh, Jackman and Grant. Yeah. yeah. that might be us and you have any questions for us or any comments please email infatuatedpodcast.outlook.com if there's any other things that you would like to hear on this podcast any other suggestions for bits we could do games we could play get in touch and we've got social media as well i will link it in the show notes as usual and all the links to anything that we've talked about will also be in the show notes see you next time See you next time. Bye. Bye.